So I'm going to start by asking a couple of questions and these questions are for Ange and Tess as our first speakers. So Ange and, and Tess, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit um, about why you think conversations are important and how do conversations bring about or influence change? And I'd really love you to say something about why conversations are important right now, like right at this time, as we're turning our minds to the COVID-19 recovery and rebuild phase. Over to you. Hi, everybody. Well, uh, I reckon that the unthinkable has just happened. So our world has been completely turned upside down in a way that we absolutely couldn't imagine um, a couple of months ago. And I think that in moments of crisis and when the whole world gets turned upside down, um, it's possible to really stretch the public imagination and stretch the democratic menu. Um, it's possible for people to start to think about things that they perhaps hadn't thought about before. Um, it's a time when we can start to, you know, tell new stories to ourselves and to each other and create new expectations. So I think this is a really, really important time for us to encourage um, all of the people in our society to pause and reflect on what really matters and on what kind of world we want to live in. And I think that conversations are a really, really vital way to do that. I think it's challenging at the moment. Um, I'm finding it challenging here. I am in my bedroom. It's cold and it's dark and I'm spending a lot of time on Zoom. Um, and I absolutely am thinking about when I emerge from this cold, dark room back into the world, what do I want to do differently? So I think one of our challenges is to help um, people who might be feeling a bit weary and a bit wary about disruption um, to imagine a better world. And we need to do it in a way that's sort of digestible for where people are at now. So I think um, conversations are a great way to do that. They're a really important way for us to connect to each other at a time when lots of people perhaps are feeling a bit lonely and also to talk about things that are really worrying us. So, you know, I think every day about the climate crisis and what needs to be done. So for me, talking to other people is a really important way for me to make sense of the world. And it's also a really important way for, to encourage others to start thinking about, you know, digesting the situation we're in and thinking about what, what as a society what we want to do differently and what they as individuals would like to start doing too. What do you reckon, Ange? Yeah, I reckon um, I'd love to build on some of the ideas that you just put forward there, Tessa. Um, so particularly, I guess, around the COVID experience. So, you know, it's been a shared experience for everyone, but I guess the way in which um, we might have felt the experience can be quite different. And I'm noticing in the conversations I've been having with people from all different, um, you know, whether it's my parents or um, family, friends or colleagues or people more, uh, more broadly, um, that something that seems to be coming up quite a lot is people having this time for um, a bit of reflection, a bit of inward um, thinking, and also people being really connected to their local place and what that means in terms of people's lived experience of what they notice and with the disruption that Tess was talking about, so disruption to daily routines, having to think about how you might change things up, um, but also what you're noticing and um, exploring some of those things. So having some really interesting conversations with people about, you know, just local places, acts, you know, the art of walking, um, you know, the importance of conversations and how much they sustain us and um, help anchor us as well in times of distress and also times of change. And also just picking up um, your point, Tessa, about, um, you know, where there's disruption and how, you know, that can be um, challenging for us because it, it requires us to rethink things, but it's also a great opportunity for us in terms of forming new behaviours, um, thinking about the stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are as people and then also who we are as society. And I think one of the things that we've seen in, in COVID is almost the, the lesser and better angels of our nature. We've seen, um, you know, acts of um, largely driven by fear and concern early on in terms of people responding um, to hoarding behaviour and things like that. But then also... An, 
amazing acts of compassion and um, generosity generosity towards one another as well, which um, I guess helps us think about the more compassionate and empathetic aspects um, to ourselves and therefore the stories that we tell ourselves about um, who we are. So some of those um, conversations I find, I don't know if others have had similar experiences that, um, you know, talking about some of the incredible things that people are doing that are um, very much for the greater, the greater good of all, uh, whether it's your immediate community or more extended community. Yeah. I think it's also interesting thinking about how people come to terms with big existential frightening issues like climate change. I think for some people, it feels like, you know, the awakening happens through science in a way that, you know, maybe they read about the physics of burning coal and feedback loops and um, it hits them really quickly and they get really, 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 really concerned and then they get active and it happens very quickly. But I think for a lot of other people, um, it happens a lot slower and it's more around a sort of first-hand experience where little bits happen that build and build until people kind of realise, oh, wow, this is, this is a thing. Um, so, you know, for some people it might be the bushfires over summer that were just so, you know, unbelievable in their scale and, you know, how long they burn, you know, just we've never experienced anything like that before. And then maybe in addition to that, it's having a chat with a neighbour about how hard it is to grow tomatoes or about drought or about, you know, the fruit trees or, you know, autumn coming sooner or later. You know, maybe it's little small incremental conversations that don't necessarily feel like much at the time, but they build into a shift in attitude. And so I think another thing that's really interesting about conversations is giving people the space and the time to make sense of what's happening and to reflect. And I feel like that's what we're doing at the moment as a society too you know, taking time to pause, reflect and think really deeply about what it all means and where we want to go. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just made me think about um, actually just sort of thinking about where people are and particularly with the climate emergency, because sometimes, you know, there's a bit of a question about whether to jump into a conversation about um, climate emergency or not and how to, how to best do that, which will obviously... Uh, cover later on in, in our time together. Um, but one of the things that I found quite interesting in terms of research, so social research, um, that turns up in a number of different studies is that actually people are very much supportive of the need to declare a climate emergency and to take action. And there's probably far more support than often what people might think. And if we hold that in our minds about um, that people are supportive of action and actually have a great um, desire for agency, then actually the nature of the conversations we might have and the expectations of what those conversations can lead to could be quite different as well. Um, so often, I think, you know, what Tessa was saying in terms of listening to, understanding where people are at um, and really connecting with where people are at, but also thinking about, um, you know, there it, there is substantial support for declaring climate emergency and taking action on that. Um, so that's also a great place, a great place to start. It's interesting if that's where you start, the conversation's so different to yes. if you assume that people aren't concerned or don't believe in the science or something like that. Um, but then it's really interesting because so many Australians are concerned about climate change. Well, you know, the vast majority of Australians are alarmed and concerned but it's not necessarily translating into action. So they're not necessarily voting for, for political parties with, with a plan. Um, you know, they're not necessarily doing all sorts of things. So then it's interesting thinking about the barriers that people have that we can try and solve through conversation. And I was reading some research around how actually often one of the really big barriers is they, they talk about social, uh, you know, self-efficacy. It's that belief that we're able to do something about this. And I think for, for people, you know, there's, there's record low trust in government and faith in democracy around the world. It's lifted a bit since, since COVID-19 sort of happened, but still people feel fairly disconnected from, um, from being part of democracy. So 
I think also a really important role that we all play um, as citizens out in the world, having conversations with our friends and our neighbours and our families is helping people find the confidence and um, helping them feel like they're able to make a difference. So sharing things that they can do, um, that feels like a really, really important barrier that we can all solve. I think it's also really interesting looking at the research about who people listen to. Mm. So, you know, the trusted, it, it, there's um, quite a bit of research around trusted messengers. And this research really suggests that people trust people they know. So the most trusted voices tend to be your friends, your family, your co-workers, people who are really close to us. So we're actually in a lot of ways, the most powerful messages to help people connect the dots and to find their feet and to find their democratic muscles so that they can start to get involved um, and you know, pushing for action and doing all of those things that need to happen. Can I ask another question, Tess and Ange? You know, we've seen, um, especially I guess over the last year and a little bit, the school strike movement and the, I guess the, the real increase in collective action, like widespread action on climate, on the climate emergency. And I'm wondering about the role of conversation in, in that. So it, what is the role of conversation in bringing about widespread action or building that sense of collective agency or collective action? So um, one of the aspects to consider is actually what we um, think is normal and the ideas that we socialise. So I guess, you know, where we're at in terms of um, requiring action and the urgency of the space that we're in is collective action is really vital and vital um, in terms of the scale and shape of the action, but also in terms of our own social networks and understanding um, what is possible and normalising that behaviour as well. So one of the um, bits of research that I was looking at the other day was actually talking about um, you know, a barrier for people in terms of taking action is actually often having someone to do that action with. Um, so not necessarily um, a lack of time, but actually knowing what to do and someone to do that with. So um, having conversations with people about um, what is powerful action and also inviting people in uh, to participate in that action as well is really important. Um, Tessa, did you want to talk about the, the strikes, the school strikes specifically, in terms of what you noticed with them? One thing that I found um, really extraordinary about the kids strike is how many people had never been to a rally before in their yeah. lives. Like never. Also, you know, I, I was on a few Facebook groups and I saw all of these people saying, hey, I really want to get my workplace to sign, sign the not business as usual declaration. I've never talked, you know, people who say that they've never talked to their workplace and their colleagues about climate change. And they felt like this was a really important time for them to be making a stand and talking about it. And there's something incredibly powerful, just thinking about social norms, you know, that we're, we're really quite social creatures, us humans, and we tend not to be like to be outliers, like we tend to want to mm. do what everybody else is doing. Um, and so, you know, it's things like, if you forget to bring your shopping bags to the supermarket, you feel a bit like, oh, that's, that's, that's a bit embarrassing. Or, you know, you keep cup, all of these things are sort of social norms. So I think what's so powerful about, about moments like the kids strike for collective action is it demonstrates just how many people care and mm. that, that there's something like four or five thousand businesses signed this workplace business declaration saying this is not business as usual um, that demonstrates just how incredibly you know so many people willing to take the day off work or take their children out of school to go and stand on the streets for something that they really really care about um, I, th I think that that kind of momentum is extraordinary and that's the momentum that we need to demonstrate um, especially to people who are concerned but are not yet active, that this is a huge wave and that they should jump on it and join it, get involved. Yeah, and it's also such, it's, um, you know, one of many powerful stories in terms of um, people that are demonstrating leadership in terms of leadership as a behaviour. Um, so people doing all sorts of incredible things. And I think, you know, if we think about um, collective action and the stories that we tell ourselves, it's really easy to make um, despair convincing. And I think part of our challenge, um, and particularly in the way in which we connect with people, is also to make sure that hope is absolutely possible 
And certainly when I look around at, you know, what we've seen in the last, well, actually this year, there's been incredible um, aspects of despair, things to be despairing about, but there's also amazing um, and incredible reassurances about what makes you hopeful for the future um, and what people can do um, collectively, but also for the good of one another as well when um, in times of pressure. There's also some really interesting research around the six Australias that I found really have shaped how I think about conversations more and more. So in this research, it started off in Yale um, quite a lot of years ago, and it's since been replicated in a whole bunch of different countries. Um, in Australia, I think the most recent research was in 2016, um, but a whole bunch of people are updating it right now. So what this research found is that people, in terms of their concern about climate change and how active they are, people tend to fall at the moment into about six tribes or six groups of people. So at one end of the scale, there are people who are really alarmed. So possibly people like a lot of us who are on this call tonight, where our alarm and our concern about climate change really shapes pretty much everything that we do, all the decisions we make. Um, you know, it's this niggling thing that just doesn't go away. It shapes how we vote, what we, you know, what electricity company we, we use, all of those things. Then there are people who are concerned, who totally get it that it's, it's, it's a serious thing and they're concerned about it, but it's not quite so front of mind that it shapes all of their decisions. So these, these are a really interesting group and there's lots and lots and lots of people are in this cohort. They don't yet know how they can get involved sometimes or it doesn't quite feel personal yet. So I think that that's a really important group for us to be talking to. Then there are people who are sort of in the middle. So they're cautious or they're disengaged. They don't think much about climate change. And there's often this sort of spiral of silence in a way where people don't hear about it. So they don't talk about it. So then they think it's not a thing that everybody else talks about. So then they're silent and they quietly worry on their own and they're not sure what to do about it. So I think that this is really important to keep in mind when we think about conversations, that a lot of people are really concerned about climate change, but just don't quite have the words to talk about it. Finally, um, thinking about those six Australias, there's a really small percentage of people um, who are doubtful and dismissive. So these are people who don't think climate change is a thing, or maybe they even you know, actively deny it. And this 2016 research suggested that was about 6% of the Australian population. So a teeny tiny percentage and shrinking um, as we get more things like bushfires um, really waking people up. So I think what's so interesting in thinking about these six Australias, um, when we have conversations with people, it's just being mindful of where people are at. So some people, especially if they're concerned but don't know what to do, that's, that's one kind of conversation that you can have, um, helping people find things that they can do. And then people who are maybe in the middle, disengaged or kind of cautious and don't think about it much, um, you can have conversations talking about how you feel about climate change. You know, I talk about my son and how I worry about what the future is going to be like for him. Or I talk about trying to grow rhubarb and how hard it is. Again, thinking back to those small, everyday interactions and little conversations that can help um, those people connect the dots. Being mindful that most people already understand it, but it, maybe they don't know what to do about it or it doesn't quite feel personal yet but I've seen some people share in the chat um, a link to the research. Um, and Rebecca Huntley is a researcher who's leading that project at the moment. It's really interesting. And that ABC article um, describes really well where people are at on climate in Australia. So um, both Ange and Tess, if I was to ask you then, um, I guess, what would be your kind of, you know your your top your top things or your, the top you know top principles about why it's important to have a conversation and why it's important to have a conversation now. What would be kind of if you give gave people just a few takeaways? What would they be? Um, okay. Hmm. I think for me, I think it's really important to keep it simple. So you don't have to be an expert on climate science. Actually, you know, Greta Thunberg, she often says, 
I don't have the answers. Listen to the scientists. And I think that that humility is actually really important too. And I think as somebody, you know, I've had a lot of conversations, especially with my sister. And I'm mindful that sometimes over the years, um, I can lecture her and I can get a bit older sister preachy. And I think don't be preachy. I think it doesn't help. I think um, having conversations and doing a lot of listening. So giving people a chance to talk things through and think about what they mean, um, especially for people who don't get to talk very much about climate change and who it's not necessarily at the forefront of their minds. Um, yeah, giving them a chance to mull it over and make sense of what it means is really important. So I think keep it simple and don't be preachy. Mm. And maybe a third one for me would be share your story. You know, people love hearing your story, our stories about, you know, what, what happened, you know, when did it hit for me when climate became, you know, such a, a thing that became so, um, so important to me that I decided that I would really, really spend all my time working in this space. Um, helping people find that, you know, connecting, we're, we're creatures who share stories. That's what we do. And so sharing those stories, I think, is a really important bit. And maybe one final one, most yeah. of all, begin. Talk. Yeah. That's what we have to do. Just talk. It's not about right or wrong. It's just about creating a space to have those conversations about how we want to live in the future, how we want to relate to each other as a society, as communities. And Tessa, would you would those principles apply? Like with thinking about to your um, what you were talking about the six Australias, would those principles apply no matter who you were talking to and where you kind of thought that that other person was starting? I think so. Hmm. I think so. I think I think um, it's you know if I have conversations, say with Joel, who I work with, who I sit beside when we're in the office, we have really different conversations about climate change. Um, than I would have with my sister or with my aunt. Um, and my sister's come a long way, by the way. Um, she now yeah, has made lots of really good choices. Um, so she's becoming, um, <laughs> it's been a project for a while. Um, just having those small conversations, but not lecturing, not judging. I know I sound judgmental, but when I talk to her, I absolutely um, am not judging her for, yeah, for where she's at. And what about you, Ange? What would be your kind of top tips for conversations? Um, so I think two that come to mind. Um, one is um, approaching the conversations with compassion. So, you know, being open-minded um, and genuinely curious about what people think and where they're at. Um, so I think that's, that's really important in terms of finding a connection point. Um, and also having conversations that unify and build on what is common about us, um, what it is that we share, I think is really important. So if I think about when I have conversations with my father, um, you know, we probably have slightly different perspectives on what makes a beautiful landscape, um, but he very much loves the country. You know, he has a very deep love for um, the country and we focus on what it is that connects us and what it is that's common for us and build on that. Um, and I also want to acknowledge as well that I think, you know, they are also, they can be very challenging conversations and to not shy away from the challenge, but do them in a way, you know, have the conversations in a way that has that compassion at the heart of it. It's really important um, and the curiosity at the heart of it as well. But they are, you know, they are big conversations. Um, a number of things that we're talking about, as are a lot of the complex challenges that we face at the moment and that are happening around us. Um, so that would be one. And the other thing is, what we touched on earlier, is that, you know, people do care. Um, so just understanding, you know, where that hesitancy is. And if it's around, um, you know, what do I do and who can I do this with, then, um, be part of that, offer that invitation to people to be part of something or join with them um, to, you know, make a difference or take some action or whatever it is and keep talking to them. You know, it's, it's an ongoing conversation. It's not a one-off um, in the way that Tessa described her conversation with her sister. You know, it's the start and, um, and uh, you know, a long conversation, an ongoing conversation that you have. That's kind of a nice thinking about... Um, Tessa's sister and maybe um, your dad, Ange, and I have people in my life as well who um, perhaps don't always 
sees things exactly the way I see them. And, um, you know, sometimes it's been tricky having conversations with those people. But it's a kind of a nice little segue into a question that we've got from um, one of the participants tonight, asking about uh, having conversations with climate deniers. So how do you approach a conversation with a climate denier? And, or, you know, is it even worth having a conversation with somebody who, who denies climate science? Um, so I think there is a very real question about whether to engage or not. Um, I think it's useful to try and understand someone's worldview. Um, but if it's a worldview that people are very entrenched in, um, it might not be a productive conversation. And I think that also leads into taking care of yourself as well in terms of the extent to which you engage in some conversations that may or may not be helpful um, and healthy for you to engage in. So I would, um, it's a bit of a sit on the fence answer, but I think I would, I would absolutely um, be mindful of the worldview that that person holds and if it's a productive uh, conversation to have or maybe not. Tessa, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I also think about <clears throat> the times when I've changed my mind from really believing really passionately about something tends not to happen overnight. Um, and I think it's also worth remembering that, say, if you have friends or family or co-workers or people who you're trying to talk to about this, it might also be enough just to plant the seed. Um, and I think sometimes people might... Um, grill you on facts or lash out or get really frustrated about the conversation. Um, and I think that those responses are sort of understandable. Like the climate crisis is a big frightening thing that's really hard to imagine. Um, and, you know, as humans, we often try and avoid thinking about things that make us frightened or overwhelmed or guilty um, or resentful. And sometimes I think rather than approaching the conversation as an advocate, trying to change somebody's mind and lecture them, um, I think we're perhaps in conversations like that, maybe it's more useful and more helpful um, to approach it as exploring what the climate crisis means without judgment or pressure and, you know, letting people, you know, sometimes I've had conversations where I felt really cross and thought about it that night and thought about it the week after. And then I've changed my view slowly over time. So I think um, absolutely you need to look after your own um, resilience and health and, um, well-being and having conversations with denialists all the time on social media is not a good thing for me. It just makes me furious. But equally, trying to find those common points of connection and plant the seed to start people thinking differently, um, I think, can be useful. I think also just um, building on that and thinking back to, Tessa, what you're saying about the Six, uh, six Americas and Five Australias or other way around, um, that actually the proportion of people who sit in the denialist um, group is actually relatively small. And certainly when we look at um, different bits of research, you know, the number of people who would be considered to be open um, and persuadable or open to um, multiple points of view is actually quite significant. So I think um, in terms of, you know, where productive conversations can happen, it can absolutely be in the group who are um, open and potentially considering different positions and persuadable. Thank you. Um, we've got one last question before we move on to part two of the webinar. And this question is about um, how do you tailor and ask? So when you're having a conversation, what, what do you think might be appropriate or Real, realistic to ask another person to do and so how do you how do you kind of judge or how, how do you choose and ask that you think is appropriate and how do you maybe weave that into the conversation mm, that's a really good question i think it, to me it depends a lot on the context so i mean to give a few examples um i have a friend who's an emergency doctor who's really, really, really concerned about climate change. She's becoming really alarmed about climate change. Um, and I have had a few conversations with her about why doesn't she um, speak out? Why doesn't she join Doctors for the Environment? Or why doesn't she um, be in an ACF video? <laughs> you know, there are lots of things that she could be doing. But for her, 
the barrier is she feels like it'll impact her you know her role at work she thinks that mm. it's not a done thing so for her the conversation about you know then that wasn't the right ask and we talked about it so then i invited her to bring her kids and come with my kids to um to a rally a kid strike and we can go together um i think with other people maybe i start the conversation by saying i read a really interesting article um and i you know i might email you know we'll talk to the to my friend about the article and send it to them afterwards um often i think my asks are around doing things together like um or you know or if a friend is really really angry about something um i'll suggest hey email your mp like if you just google their name you get their email address you should email your mp um yeah so it, i think for, it probably depends on the context the asks that i would make how about you Ange? yeah i would um also think about um how people might understand their circle of influence so thinking about you know what are the different ways that they can influence change um and having a conversation about that so there could be uh, multiple ways that people can actually create change that they haven't thought about before um haven't considered doing um, that would potentially lead on to something else as well. So, yeah, having a, a open conversation about what are the different touch points for people and different ways in which they can influence. And yeah, as we said before, I think, um, you know, the opportunity to actually invite someone to something or do something together is also a really good thing. In, in some respects, I think it's, it's the act of doing something um, and the behaviour of doing something. There can be multiple um, actions that people take. Thanks so much, Ange, and thanks so much, Tessa. We're going to, um, I'm just sorry to be such a strict timekeeper, but I am going to hustle us along a little bit to the second part of the webinar. And um, perhaps if people have questions that come to mind in the, in the next little while, they can pop them into the chat function. And if we do have time at the end, we will get to them again. Um, but if not, perhaps we can do a follow-up with some answers to questions. But we're going to jump on to the second part of the webinar now. And this part is all about the how of conversations. So this is um, going to be led by Carly and Joel. Carly from Climate for Change and Joel from ACF, who I introduced you all to earlier on in the night. And um, Carly and Joel are going to give us lots of really nitty gritty tips and techniques so when we leave this webinar tonight we're going to feel like we're totally ready to roll and armed with all the right skills to go and have the conversations we want to have about climate so uh, with that i'm going to hand over to carly and joel thanks heaps both of you thanks so much sam and um joel should i start or do you want to introduce yourself first <laughs> after you all right. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Sam. And um, yeah, hey everyone. I'm, I've been a uh, climate for change uh, volunteer facilitator for the last three years. And um, I was just loving listening to what Tessa and, and Angela were saying because so much of it resonated with um, what I've learned and, and the experiences that I've had through, uh, through working with this organisation. So yeah that was that was really great and um it's also really lovely to be here doing this webinar with joel because it was his climate for change dinner that he hosted uh back in the winter of 2016 that introduced me to the organization so uh i was a guest and i signed up that very night to train to become a facilitator so yeah you never know where these conversations uh will lead and um yeah climate for change is an organization that I'm really passionate about. So I'll just tell you a little bit about it. Uh, our mission is to create the social climate for effective action on climate change. And we do this by helping everyday Australians to gain a deeper understanding of the climate crisis and also empower them to have better conversations about it and take action in, uh, in many ways. And um, our work is based on social research that says that, you know, we're people do take in all that information that we're bombarded with in mass media, but it sits at the back of our head um, until we have a conversation about it with people that we trust, as Tessa was saying before, from um, trusted messengers. So 
Um, that's why our climate conversations happen in someone's lounge room. And it simply involves a host asking their friends and family to come along for dinner, or more recently, we've been holding them online. And then someone like me comes in to facilitate the evening. And we also realised that while these conversations are the first step, um, the systemic changes that we want to see will not come about without action on a grander scale. So that collective action and also from government and big business. So Climate for Change also supports people to start an MP engagement group, uh, MPEGs, uh, which I'll tell you guys about a bit later. And that's helping people to have that conversation as well with their elected representatives. And I think that leads a bit into um, what you're going to talk about, Joel. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Carly. So, hi, everyone. It's um, awesome to be here. And um, thanks, Sam and everyone at um, Yarra City for hosting us. So, my name's Joel. I am um, also, like uh, Tessa, work at the Australian Conservation Foundation. And my job is to really um, help activate all the people that are taking action in all sorts of ways on climate and nature campaigns across the country and try and build the people power across um, the ACF community so that more and more people can be speaking out and taking effective strategic action on these issues. So um, as Carly mentioned, we have known each other for quite a while, so it's really nice to be working together um, tonight. Uh, I guess a little bit about my kind of background. I um, kind of came to be involved in advocacy through conversation in, um, in that as a, a tool, essentially. So I was teaching English um, at a refugee rights organisation and kind of heard about some research that was like, hey, um, you know, these are ways that we can reframe conversations and have them more effectively on this issue um, in a way that might actually build the movement so that we can build more power and, and, and change the situation here. And um, I was kind of transfixed by that research and it's kind of taken me on a journey that um, led me to meeting people like Tessa and Ange um, a couple of years ago and being like, wow, this work is so um, transformational. And I think that's what, what is most important about it is that we are all capable of doing this. Like these are skills that we can all bring into our lives. And it's not about having some sort of like epic story or grand, you know, thing that you bring in and, and um, you know, take and parade around. It's really just about the, the fundamentals of relating to one another. And often it's actually um, playing the role of a facilitator in a way, creating that space for that other person to reflect on what they feel and what they believe to be true um, and kind of nudging them along on a bit of a journey as they do back to you. It's always a dialogue where you learn um, both ways. So I guess I really care deeply about the power of conversation. Um, and, you know, we've kind of at ACF seen that on various levels of scale. So, um, for example, uh, in the lead up to the uh, federal election last year, we were having lots of conversations all around the country talking about climate as an issue and, um, and ranging from people on making phone calls, door knocking, um, hosting events in their communities. And um, we did a bit of research along the way that really showed the impact of a conversation can be transformational. And, um, you know, five to 10 minutes spent on the phone to a total stranger can really make a lasting change um, for people and, and, and get people really um, kind of connecting with those things that they feel inside themselves and connecting to a community who care. Um, so Carly, if you don't mind, would you mind uh, popping up the PowerPoint? So we're just going to kind of recap on some of the conversation principles um, that Tessa and Angela have really outlined uh, super clearly already, um, I would say. So this will be very much a recap for us. Um, but essentially the first thing um, that we think about, just kind of keeping in mind that it's that role is really, it's a, it's kind of, it's an opportunity to connect with that person in a very authentic way um, and also kind of facilitate a bit of a process between the two of you where you do some of these things. So the first thing is really about being present and authentic. So you want to be making, it kind of goes, all of these things are very common sense, but I think it's good to be reminded of them in a, in a succinct way. So it's like make a genuine connection and be willing to be vulnerable and open about what you're unsure about. So as Tessa and Ange have mentioned, like that's, you don't need to know all the answers and bring that humility um, to the conversation because it's, 
you know, time and time again, the research shows us that facts are not what changes minds. It's, it's emotion and it's about values and it's about um, heartfelt things um, that people share together. Even if at first you might feel like you're being a bit earnest, um, actually pushing through that and sharing something vulnerably is, um, is really, really powerful. Um, another big tip from us, of course, is asking questions and listening carefully. Now, the reason we want to do that is because we want to be able to really understand people's genuine concerns and doubts. If you're making assumptions about why someone has a view or what someone might think already, then you're already like on the wrong track because that, that opportunity of conversation is really what can, can allow you to understand where someone else is, what someone else is thinking and where they're at um, and find those opportunities to build that shared um, connection and common ground um, between each other. The next one is about speaking from personal experience. As Tessa was talking about before, um, sharing why you care and why you're involved can actually be really powerful. And again, it doesn't have to be something that's an epic story of adventure. Um, often the most simple things and the most kind of mundane um, things, but that can mean something bigger um, and relate to other people uh, can be the most powerful. So this is really about talking about why you care and why you take action. Um, really why, you know, why would you put your neck out, you know, socially? Sometimes, sometimes depending on what circles you might kind of um, be in, doing something around activism might not be the norm. It might be actually taking a step out of the social norm to be involved in something like that or to be the person that speaks out or wants to have a conversation. So I think sharing with people the vulnerability of that and what's driving you to actually do that can be a really powerful thing. Um, and it's also about connecting the dots between that kind of your own experience to then a systemic issue. Um, so being able to, to communicate, well, I, I personally feel this way um, and this is an experience that I've had and then connecting that to systemic action, but also like how that connects on a bigger scale um, so that you can clearly articulate why you're doing the action um, that you're doing. And then, of course, as we've already talked about again, inviting people to get more involved and deepen their understanding. So this can be, as people um, have been sharing in the chat, big shouts out to Chris and Mike and a couple of others, I think, who have been um, sharing resources in the chat. I also see, uh, who else was in there? Kelly as well. Thank you, Kelly, for sharing stuff in the chat. Um, even something as simple as, like, if you put something on your Facebook page and a group of people like it, um, sometimes, and this, this might, I don't know, make of this what you want, but sometimes I'll, I'll have a look at those people who have liked it and go, oh, yeah, expected, 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 expected. Oh, right, yeah, cool. I didn't know that this content would resonate with that person. And that's really a great opportunity for me to know that maybe next time I see them, I want to um, open that conversation with them as well. Um, so when you're having a conversation with people, often the first couple of times it might be, hey, I read this thing and, you know, what, what do you think of this? You know, people, people love being asked for their opinions and it's, it's something that is often not done, you know, like seeking out, hey, going, hey, I really actually respect you. I want to know what you think of this thing um, could also be a really good way to start that conversation. Um, and then share what you do or would like to do to take action and ask if they'll join you. So when, when we talk about inviting people to, to be part of the movement, it's really keeping on your radar. What are you up to? What are you thinking about doing? Is there a rally coming up? Is there a community group you're wanting to join or you already are in? Um, what kind of issues of the day have some of the, maybe some of the advocacy groups been asking you to write to a particular target, for example, in a campaign that you might be following. So sharing and socialising those things that you might see, letters you might be writing to decision makers, et cetera, um, with others so that they can also see what opportunities there are to get involved. So um, we're gonna eventually get to a point where we're gonna get into breakout rooms and have a bit of a chat about bringing these conversations to life and with whom we might be able to do that with. And before we do that, I'll throw back to Carly um, to talk a bit more about uh, some structure around conversations and how they do that at Climate for Change. Thanks, Joel. And yeah, I just want to say I really love that example of taking the Facebook like and, and kind of 
and bringing that into the into the real world. I love that. <laughs> gonna I'm gonna do that myself. So um, yeah, I'm gonna take you all through um, kind of the structure of a, a climate for change conversation. But um, keeping in mind that this is a bit more formal and um, what we do takes um, around two to three hours. So, um, but I think that a lot of the elements of this can be taken into everyday conversations. So first of all, when I uh, you know, rock up in someone's home and um, talk to the host and get talking to everyone, I start with a little introduction to Climate for Change. And also as Joel and I think Tessa were mentioning, sharing a bit of my personal story. Um, again, that's, yeah, connecting people. People might recognize something in your, in your story that, um, that they've also felt. So um, it doesn't have to be huge, but for example, um, could be some kind of action that you've just taken and how, how you feel about it. Uh, so when I switched my bank from one that invested in fossil fuels to one that didn't, I told my friends about it and I was really excited to, to tell them. So um, the next thing we do in the climate conversation is show a 20 minute video. Um, and that's really to get people on the same page. You know, we don't want to assume that everybody um, knows a lot about uh, the climate change issue or doesn't, you know, um, and it's also, you know, watching something together engages you emotionally in the issue. So um, this could also translate to holding a movie night uh, that you're watching with your friends. And it's just a great way to start a conversation. And on the evening, we jump into the discussion from there. And, you know, my role as a facilitator is to make sure that everyone has a chance to share something. Uh, so also echoing kind of what people have said before, um, in any conversation, if you just make sure that you're actively listening um, just as much or even more than you're speaking and kind of being reflective in the way that you um, reply to people and yeah, really considering how they're feeling in the moment. From there, we go to our uh, theory of change. And this is, you know, how we're gonna build this grassroots movement to effectively tackle climate change. Uh, I'm not gonna go into this in detail uh, now, but it does involve standing up um, to take citizen action. So talking to decision makers, and at the same time, reaching out to uh, the people around you. And we finish off with a lot of different ways that people can take action. And I think as Tessa was saying before, you know, not everybody wants to go to a rally or not everybody wants to talk to their MP. Um, but I think, you know, um, just mentioning a lot of different things and that's how we finish our climate conversations is giving a whole range of actions and finding something that, that people are comfortable with. And, you know, for example, I, I spoke to a friend and I, and I suggested that she host a climate conversation, but this just made her really anxious. But um, when it came to writing a letter um, or again, like I was saying before, divesting from fossil fuels, um, she was really excited about that. So I think, yeah, just asking and, and um, giving people lots of options. All right, so I'm gonna get into a little bit about um, where and how we can take these, uh, or start these climate conversations. And we kind of, uh, when I talk to, to people in our climate conversations, we talk about three different ways that you can reach out to the people around you. So the first one is through spontaneous conversations. And these are usually one-on-one -on -one with your friends, your family, you know, around the water cooler. It could even start on social media. And even with people that you don't know, um, you know, it might seem a bit strange to talk about it on, on, on the tram, but um, this has actually happened to, I think one of our, uh, one of my fellow facilitators said uh, they were wearing their Climate for Change badge. And um, this actually started a conversation with someone at a petrol station and they ended up, you know, not, not having, you know, a very long conversation, but yeah, that was also could be the seed that plants um, that idea in someone. And the next type is intentional conversations. And this is where you can really get a bit more um, deeply into the issue. And um, yeah, this could mean hosting or for me, my first climate conversation um, that I hosted with, was with uh, together with a friend. So that kind of took the pressure off a bit. 
um, hosting a movie night, as I mentioned, or a book club, and uh, or starting an MP engagement group. And this is something I'll get into a little bit later, but um, yeah, this is really just getting some friends together to take action together. And the last one is public conversations and that it doesn't mean that you're doing public speaking like in front of 100 people. This could just mean uh, you get involved with a local group, say it could be an ACF community group or Friends of the Earth or something local to you and um, there's always campaigns going on there and this could lead to um, setting up market stalls and, and just talking to, to your neighbours, to people around you, door knocking or the calling parties that Joel mentioned before. And um, one of my favourite examples of this, um, when I was uh, part of a, the ACF community group as part of the series Environment um, Centre in Brunswick, we spoke to people about coming to the school strikes uh, back in September at one of the weekly markets. And um, many people were already going. And so, you know, we got to have that deeper conversation about why they were going or who else they were gonna bring on board, but others had no idea. And, um, you know, and we got to give them that information. So you never know what a random conversation will spark in someone and, uh, and yeah, lead them to do next. And the other way that we encourage people to, um, to have these conversations is with uh, decision makers. So it might seem a bit scary, but uh, it's really not. The, your, uh, your local MP or um, decision makers are their people as well. And um, they say that it's really powerful when people pick up the phone or the most powerful thing is really to organise a visit. And uh, I think as Andrew was saying before, this is not something you need to do on your own. So getting, getting your friends together uh, kind of helps you a lot with that and also elevating the issue in the media. And so this is something that um, I do with my MP engagement group and yeah, writing, writing letters to the editor, participating in online conversations, which is something that you will get into a bit more deeply at next week's webinar, I think with the Yarra Council that Sam will uh, tell you about more a bit later on digital advocacy. So, yeah, these are things that you don't need to do alone. And um, the way I did this with my MP engagement group was just to start getting together with friends over a cup of tea or a glass of wine. We have a chat about the issue. We decide who to write to, and then we just get down to it. And the great thing is that our amazing volunteers at Climate for Change have created great resources to help you do this. Uh, so that's from briefings on the issue to template letters, um, and how to run an MPEG online as well. So there's heaps of support and um, yeah, you can follow that link. I'll, I'll pop that in the chat as well, if you're interested. <laughs>